Father, we come once more before your throne, and we ask, Lord, once more that you would be gracious to us as you always are gracious to us, but Father, that you would in a special way be near us and help us as we study this word from you, help us to receive it as from your mouth and to be quick uh, to respond to it in faith and obedience. And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, be present with us by your Spirit uh, to accomplish your good purposes. And Father, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, take your Bibles with me and turn back to the Gospel of Mark. My plan this morning is to finish our study of Mark chapter 3. And for the past few weeks, we've been studying a section that starts in verse 20 of chapter 3 and goes all the way down to verse 35. And the theme of that section is responses to Jesus Christ. Responses to Jesus Christ. And as I've said again and again, that whenever you encounter Jesus Christ, either in person, as these folks did in the first century, or through His written Word, like you are this morning. Every time you encounter Jesus Christ, you must necessarily respond to Him. No one can encounter Jesus and walk away without responding. Either you will respond in faith, or you will respond in unbelief. And the sad reality of life in a broken world is that most often the responses of people to Jesus Christ is a response of unbelief. We see two forms of that unbelief in our text in verses 20 to 35. A hard-hearted unbelief and then a a sort of soft, gentle unbelief that was Jesus' brothers. But unbelief is the common response to Jesus Christ. Christ, which is why Jesus said that the road of unbelief is very wide. The the road, the way of unbelief is a very broad way. It's the easy, natural way, and it's the default way of humanity, is to go the way of unbelief. And the tragedy is that The road of unbelief leads to destruction. And Scripture says there are many who enter through it. And sadly, many of those who are on the broad way of unbelief are people who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ week after week after week. They've read the Bible, they've been to church, they've heard about the salvation that God has extended so graciously to sinners. And they look at that and they say, it's just a little bit too restrictive. It's too narrow. I want to sort of have Jesus, but do it my own way. They don't like God's way, and so they go and they seek out another way. And one that fits their preferences a little better. But the reality, and we know this from Scripture, is that any road other than Christ is a road to destruction. Because God has only given humanity one way. There's only one way. There's only one way to life and one way to salvation. And we know that that way is through Jesus Christ. He is the one way. Not just the one way to salvation, but He is the one way for you to live your life. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way of salvation. He's the only way of life. And that means Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only way to be saved. 
And he is consequently the only way to have true meaning, significance, true life, and happiness. And the only way for any sinners to find and have their sins forgiven. All of that is through Jesus Christ. Now the world offers a multitude of different ways for you to get that. There is an infinite number of pathways that the world and your sinful flesh offer you to get salvation and to have meaning, significance, joy, happiness in life. And what we see in our text this morning is that only those who look at Jesus Christ and say, I'll take that way, only those who respond to Him in humble submission, only those who look to Jesus and say, your way is the only way and I'm following you, only those people are said to be in the family of God. And really, to put it another way, the only fitting response to Jesus Christ is to bow to Him as Lord of all. Any other option is a non-option. It leads to destruction. And those who respond to Jesus by saying that He is Lord, this is what they do. They throw off their expectations as to what God should do. They throw off their ideas of what the Messiah should be. They throw off their pride and arrogant exaltations of themselves above Jesus. And they humbly throw themselves at His feet and bow to Him as Lord. In other words, they say, I am no longer my own, but belong body and soul to Him. He is Lord. Not only that, but He is my Lord. He is Lord, but He is my Lord. And that is the core confession of true Christianity. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. That's the heart of the core confession of true Christians everywhere. And honestly... From this passage, it's the only fitting way to respond to Jesus. And it's only those who respond to Jesus in total surrender to Him as Lord who are said to be part of God's family. Meaning, they know salvation. Those are the only ones. And that's what we see in our text this morning. So, I invite you to stand with me. We're going to read for the last time. Uh, Mark 3, verse 20, all the way down to 35, working our way to focus really on verses 31 to 35. Mark 3, verse 20, and he came, Jesus came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided... He cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, 
Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You may be seated. So our focus this morning is on verses 31 to 35, which you'll remember continues this narrative that Mark began back in verse 21, a narrative that's really about the family of Jesus and their response to him. Mark starts in verse 21 by describing how Jesus' family had heard about his ministry and the effects that Jesus' ministry was having all around Galilee and, and even down into Jerusalem. And they had heard that Jesus, verse 20, was working so hard and the crowds were pressing on him so intensely that he didn't even have time to eat a meal. And they would have also heard the reports about Jesus and his refutations of the religious leaders of Israel. And that report would apparently, or did apparently, make its way all the way, 30 miles from Capernaum, all the way to Nazareth, where Jesus' family lived. And so in verse 21 of Mark 3, Jesus' family sets out to go to Capernaum in order to take custody of Jesus. We've looked at that passage and we said that it, it seems most likely that Jesus' brothers are the ones leading this charge. Their estimation of Jesus is that, according to verse 21, he has lost his mind. And so they're on a mission to subdue Jesus, domesticate him, get him back under control, rein him in a little bit. Now we also know, according to verse 31, that Mary is with them on this expedition. But you'll remember that throughout the New Testament, it seems, and it's not just seems that, but it's clear that Mary's response to Jesus and the promise of God regarding Jesus was always one of faith. So Mary, we shouldn't think that Mary is here saying Jesus has lost his mind. Mary is doing something differently. Most likely, she is, as every mother would be, she's concerned about Jesus' health. Since he's not eating, and that's the report, he's not eating, the crowds are coming wave after wave after wave, and he's also directly opposing the scribes, who, by the way, are plotting to kill him. Jesus' mother, just as any mother would have, she responds with compassion and a desire to sort of get him out of this volatile situation. That's, I think, what her ambition is here. The brothers, though, had a different goal. In John 7, verse 5, we're told definitively that they did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Neither James, Joseph, Judas, or Simon, four brothers, at least two sisters, but none of these brothers believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be until after the resurrection. But at this point, they are unconvinced that Jesus is the Lord. They're not buying it. And their assessment, as best they can, their appraisal of Jesus is that he has lost his senses. Literally, he's out of his mind, beside himself. So they're most likely driven by some form of embarrassment. Jesus is the older brother, And he is the one sort of setting the tone for the family. And the report is getting back to the family. And Jesus' younger brothers want to come and and take custody of Jesus. They want to seize him. And the word means to take control of him by mastery. It's the same idea, same word used to imprison someone. In this case, it's like protective custody. We, We think our brother's lost his mind. We want to pull him in and just bring him home. For a little while. And that's, that's what they're wanting to do. It's kind of a high um, 
gentle form of unbelief is what this is. It's not as blatant and outright as the scribes who say that Jesus has a devil, but it's still unbelief nonetheless. And, and Mark wants to make that clear. And so what he does is he sandwiches verses 22 to 30, which is the narrative about the scribes' hard-hearted response to Jesus. He sandwiches that story in between verse 21 and verse 31, which is about Jesus' family's unbelief. And the point there is Mark is, is making a literary point to say the unbelief of Jesus' brothers was just as heinous and wicked as the unbelief of the scribes. And so we see that the family in verse 31, they finally arrive and they make their journey from Nazareth to Capernaum and they finally arrive at the house where Jesus was staying. And as they arrive, they find things to be exactly as reported. People are everywhere. The streets are full. And the house is jam-packed. You know, people are sort of flowing out of the house even. So much so that you know, they can't even get in there to the kitchen to, to make food. And the brothers, Mary, they show up. They see things exactly as they reported in the house, or as the report had said, and the house was so packed that they couldn't even make it inside to see Jesus. So verse 31, they had to send word to him and call him. So the text says they sent word to him and called him. This is something like the telephone game. Have you guys played that game? They can't get to Jesus, so they just find the closest guy and say, take this message to him. And the message is passed from one person to another until finally in verse 32, it reaches the people who are sitting closest to Jesus, which would have certainly included the 12 disciples, but probably others as well. And verse 32 says very specifically that they were sitting around him, encircling Jesus. Jesus is in the center, probably sitting down, and this group of close followers are around him, hearing what he has to say. And they come, or the message rather, comes finally through all the people, makes its way to this inner ring surrounding Jesus. And they say to Jesus, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Behold. Just a note about that word. That sounds very archaic. You know, it's kind of Shakespearean. You know, they're sitting there and they say, behold. You know, it's not really like that. Um, the word is the word idu, which means like to look. It's a strong imperative. But over time, it weakened and became something like a tap on the shoulder. A way to get someone's attention. We would say, excuse me, Jesus. Right? You have to think in terms of these are disciples who are revering Jesus and are bowed to him. And he has just sort of had a mic drop moment on the scribes where he said that they were going to hell, effectively. And the tone in this building, this house, is very somber. So this is not a, you know, a Shakespearean, behold, Jesus. It's a, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are out here. You didn't want to be that guy to tap on Jesus in that moment. So, the message makes its way to the disciples. One of them, one unfortunate brother or sister, has the responsibility of tapping Jesus on the shoulder and saying, Jesus, your unbelieving brothers are outside. And once they get his attention... They pass on the message. Now, we have to ask, what's happening here? Because Jesus' response seems a little harsh. What is happening here? What is the larger context? And, and that's what we need to get if we're going to interpret these last five verses appropriately. Remember, Jesus, according to the Gospel of Matthew, had just healed a man and had cast out a demon from him. And the scribes 
had traveled from Jerusalem and, and it coalesced at just the right time as Jesus casts out the demon, these, this official delegation from Jerusalem comes, they see this moment happen and all the crowds are forced to make some response and they start asking, is this really the son of David? That's the only thing that makes sense, that this would be the promised Messiah. But they're not totally convinced and the scribes sort of swoop in and they want to take charge of the moment. And you remember that verses 22 to 30, as we looked at last week, they, in verse 22, accuse Jesus. They say that the way that Jesus is carrying out all of these miracles is by the power of the devil. Don't follow him. Don't listen to what Jesus is saying. He is satanic. That's what the scribes are saying. And their accusation... Well, actually, let me back up first. You've got to think that these are like the official, most recognized and respected pastors of the day. These are godly, I mean, apparently, on the outside, men who give the appearance of godliness. And people looked at them with reverence and respect and awe even and would bow to them as they're walking on the road. They would get out of their way to let them pass by. And here Jesus has just said that these men have committed an unpardonable sin and are going to hell. It's a somber, sober, serious, weighty, heavy moment. And and further, Jesus says anyone who follows after these men, they're headed in the same direction. And in the immediate wake of that moment, That mic drop heavy moment. In the wake of that moment, just as Jesus has finished this pronouncement against the scribes, he gets this message that his family is outside. His unbelieving brothers are outside and they want to take custody of him. I mean, just talk about sanctifying. You know, here you've just laid your heart out and you've just given it all. And you've just laid it out for everyone and, are, and you're sort of pleading with someone, people to bow to the, the messenger of God. And then these people look at you blankly and say, hey, what do you want for lunch? It's kind of like, what are you, what are you talking about? Do you, did you not hear a word I just said? And it's, it, it's really what's happening is that this moment is about to be compromised by triviality. There was in this moment, remember, you encounter Jesus, you have to respond. And in this moment, there was no greater reality for these people to come to terms with. It was a matter of great consequence and nothing was more urgent. And yet, it was interrupted by this distraction from his unbelieving family. And that's really what it is. It's a distraction from... The moment. The brothers don't believe, and so they don't get the magnitude of what is unfolding before them. And Mary, although she has responded in faith to the promise of God, just like any of us, her faith was not perfect. She was not flawless. And and actually, we see throughout the Gospels that Mary tends to sort of get in the way of Jesus' agenda. And that's really what's happening here. I think it's an unwitting intrusion into Jesus' agenda. Let me give you a couple of examples of that, just so you know what I'm talking about. Luke 2, 49. Luke chapter 2, 49. You can flip over there if you want. But we see this sort of interference from Mary. And Mary and Joseph had brought Jesus to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And Jesus was only a boy, he was 12 years old. And Luke tells us that The family stayed in Jerusalem the accustomed length of time. And then as they were on their way home, Mary and Joseph realized that they had left Jesus behind. Apparently they presumed that he was with them in the caravan and he wasn't there. And the text says that he was essentially lost for three days. Can you imagine you lose your son for three days? Can you imagine losing your 12-year-old son for three days? 
Now, this was a perfect 12-year-old song. But still, talk about you know, panic and fear and anxiety. Well, they finally find Jesus. Remember, they go on the search. They finally find him. And um, you remember where he was. He's in the temple. Sitting, the text says, in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And further, it says, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers at 12 years old. It's shocking. But then in verse 48, Luke 2, verse 48, Mary runs up to him and says, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. What are you doing? Where have you been, Jesus? What's wrong with you? And so, effectively, Mary is rebuking Jesus, which is not a good idea. And, and really, it's, it's as if she's accusing him of deliberately hiding from them. When the reality was that Jesus was not sinning against Mary. The Passover was a massive festival. Massive. Thousands upon thousands of people. And somehow, Jesus had gotten separated from the family. And Mary and Joseph were just as culpable. And Jesus did what any lost child should do when they're lost. They went to a very visible place, or he did rather. He went to a very visible place with respected, trustworthy people. And he sat down and started talking with them. Mary knew that Jesus had done the right thing. That's what you would want your child to do. But in the moment, she is so overwhelmed by her emotions and her anxiety and her fear. And so she went and she essentially rebuked him. And Jesus graciously corrected her in verse 49. And he said, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? In other words, where else do you think I would have gone? Where else would I be? One, this is the safest place in all of Jerusalem, and you should have came here first. You know this is the one place in the world I want to be. And two, Mary knew Jesus. She knew that he was the Son of God. She should have known that Jesus was doing something intentional. He was carrying out an agenda, a divine agenda. And rather than rebuke Jesus, she needed to get on that agenda. Well, we see another occasion like this in John 2. You remember the wedding in in Cana. Jesus and his mother were at the wedding and the wine runs out. Again, she knew who this man, this boy in Luke 2, and this man was in John 2. She knew her son and she knew that he was God in flesh. So she looked at him. And she said, they have no wine. Now, you know what that means. You know what that means because your wife might, has, has probably said to you, the trash is full. You know what that means. Jesus knows exactly what Mary is saying. And so he responds in verse 4 of John 2. Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Sounds rude by our 21st century standard, but Jesus was not being rude. This was just a way of speaking to put some distance between him and Mary, because in that moment, Mary had her agenda, and she was trying to get Jesus to get on board with that agenda rather than her bowing to the agenda of the Christ. So he lovingly rebuked her again. And the point there is that Mary was unwittingly interfering with the divine agenda. I mean, in this case, at the wedding in Cana, she's essentially saying, Jesus, the, the wine is out. Now's your time. I know who you are. 
You know who you are, but all these people don't know who you are. Now's your time to shine. Let's do it. Let's show them that you're the Messiah. And by the way, it'll also vindicate me that I was the virgin mother of the Messiah. So let's get to it. Go do it. And Jesus says, nope, it, won't, it doesn't work that way, Mary. You have to get onto my agenda. And basically, that's what's happening in Mark 3, 31 and 32. Mary is once again, although she's believing, I think, she's unwittingly interfering with Jesus' agenda, while the brothers themselves are just outright unbelieving. And so back in Mark 3, here we are. Jesus has just put the scribes in their place, pronounced that all those who follow in their steps will never be forgiven. And the people... In the room, haven't even had a moment to lift their jaws off the floor before Jesus' family shows up and starts unwittingly trivializing the moment. But Jesus turns their interruption into a priceless, powerful teaching opportunity. And he looks at the messenger, messengers maybe, who delivered the message to him, and he asks the question in verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers? Who are my mother and my brothers? In verse 34, it says, Looking about at those who were sitting around him. Literally, this is looking around at the ones sitting around him in a circle. It's redundant, which is why we just translate it. Looking about at those sitting around him. They're literally in a circle. He looks around them and he sees them. And he says, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Verse 35, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's a powerful statement. The people closest to him, those are the ones who have believed and obeyed him and who have responded in faith to him, while everyone else has responded in unbelief, even his own brothers. And he looks at this inner circle and he says, this is my true family. Such a statement would have stunned the crowd. And it would have sounded to many like he was actually repudiating his family. But the reality was that He was not doing that. He wasn't repudiating his family, but he was underscoring the weightiness of the moment by exalting the supremacy of spiritual relationships over familial ties. He was saying, in effect, when you compare physical family to the spiritual realities that I'm trying to communicate to you, when you compare Physical family to these realities, your earthly family is of little or no consequence at all. What matters most is not your family, is not your familial ties, but how you respond to me. And the bottom line reality is that only those who had believed and obeyed him Those alone were the ones who constituted the true family of Jesus Christ. And that truth is as transcendent and timeless as any other truth that we encounter in Scripture. The true family of Jesus is and will always be made up of those who do the will of God. I'll say that again. The true family of Jesus. You want to know, are you in the family of God? Jesus' true family was then and is now only those who are doing the will of God. That is the plain and simple truth Jesus is teaching in verse 35. Now, the question is, What does it mean to do the will of God in the Gospel of Mark? And what did Jesus mean when he said, whoever does the will of God? What does he mean? And what does Mark teach us throughout the Gospel of Mark? 
What does he teach us about the will of God? Well, if, if, if your conformity to God's will equates to your familial tie to Jesus, then we have to know what the will of God is. So let me tell you. In the context of the Gospel of Mark, to do the will of God in the most basic sense is to respond to Jesus in faith and repentance. That is the will of God. We see that throughout the Gospel of Mark, but it's stated most clearly in Mark 1, verse 15. Why don't you flip back there with me? To do the will of God is to respond to Jesus the Messiah in faith and repentance. It's stated in Mark 1.15. Jesus is preaching, remember, and he's saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, God's kingdom has now come. And God is placing a demand, His will, on every man, woman, and child. And that demand is to repent, Mark 1.15, and to believe in the gospel. That's the will of God in the gospel of Mark. So let's, let's look at those two points one phrase at a time. Repent and believe in the gospel. We'll start with believe in the gospel. To believe is to simply respond to Jesus in faith and trust. That's what it means to believe. You don't call him a liar. You stop that. You stop calling him a liar. You don't call him a lunatic. You stop that. You stop calling him a lunatic. You actually now confess that he is neither a liar and he's not a lunatic, but he is actually all that he has said and claimed to be in his word. That's what it means to believe. That you come to God and you say, I believe what you say and I simply refuse to call you a liar. Unbelief looks at God and says, you are a liar. Faith looks at God and says, whether I feel like this is true or not, you cannot lie. You must be truth. And you must speak truth. And I will bow to that. That's what it means to have faith. Faith is simply to refuse to call God a liar and to take Him at His word. It it says... God is true, therefore what He says is truth, and it's settled. That's belief. Second, He says, to believe, of course, God's will is that you believe Him. That's what God wants from you, is that you believe Him. Second, God's will is that you repent. You repent. This is in Mark 1.15, remember? To repent and believe. Now this is crucial. And it's tied directly to our passage in Mark 3. We're looking at what does it mean to repent. Repentance in the gospel of Mark is this. Repentance is that you stop following your own lead. And you start following Jesus Christ. That's repentance. You turn... From living your own way, and you start walking behind Jesus. That's repentance. Now, that's the big picture of repentance, but it has an infinite amount of visible expressions. As you walk behind Jesus at work, walk behind Jesus in your home, walk behind Jesus in your parenting, walk behind Jesus in your singleness. Repentance is for you to walk behind Jesus and do what He calls you to do. You you embrace His will and His way. And you say, He is my master. And I will no longer follow my own lead and my own way. 
Repentance is you simply turning from following your own judgment. And you say, what has Jesus said? And I will follow His way and His judgment. In a word, repentance is to live underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the master and you are the slave. Now, in order to do that, in order for you to repent, in order for you to live behind Jesus, to follow Him and to live underneath His authority, you must first renounce your pretended lordship. This is why Mark 8.34, Jesus says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You are either the Lord, pretended Lord of your own life, or Jesus is your Lord. Those are your options. Mark 8.34 says that the entry point into the Christian life is the crucifixion of yourself. Self must be crucified because self, get this, self is your default Lord and Master. Did you know that? Self, yourself, is your default Lord and Master. You were born into this world with loyalties to one Lord, and it was not Jesus. Your loyalties are to yourself by default. By nature, you love yourself, you live for yourself, you prioritize yourself. We see this explicitly in little babies. This is the programmed setting of little babies. And they're not thinking about, how can I serve my mother today? You know, I tell you what, she had a long day, so I'll sleep all night for her so she can get some rest. They're not thinking that way. They are thinking about what they can eat, how much they can drink, how much they can sleep, and all of it revolves around their little cute selves, right? It's all about them. And as we grow older, if we don't crucify that self-oriented life, it grows bigger and bigger and bigger. And the gravitational pull of it is so powerful that even though you try to veil it and hide it, it inevitably has these little expressions and really in a thousand different ways. And you might hide your self-centeredness, but it will manifest itself inevitably. And unless ultimately, unless ultimately you repent, you turn from yourself and turn to Christ, your self-loyalty will lead you straight to hell. This is what Jesus is teaching. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ will have no rivals. No rivals. Yourself exalts itself against Jesus as a rival Lord. And Jesus will not have a rival. And that's why he says, if you're going to be mine, you have to die. Self has to be crucified before you can come after me. And if you are a Christian, you know that self-crucifixion is not a one and done. It would be nice if you could do it once, and then it's like, whew, now I'm with the Lord forever, and I'm His, and my life is completely under His sway, and I go where He goes, and I say what He says, and I do what He wants me to do. But friends, that is not reality. Crucifixion, self-crucifixion, following Jesus is a perpetual thing. We perpetually have to turn from ourselves back to Jesus and His way. To use a, a crass analogy, we're like 
like an, a dog, right? We're being trained on the leash. But initially, we just want to go our own way. And, you know, we're like running circles and we're doing all our other stuff. And the Lord is gracious to patiently train us to get behind him. Okay, get behind me. Just come behind me. Come behind me again. You follow for, a, you know, a city block. And then you start going off your own way. And the Lord says, come back. Come back behind me. And that is the Christian life. He's calling us day in, day out to come more and more behind him. So self-crucifixion is not a one-and-done thing. It's a perpetual mode of living. Christian life is a perpetual crucifixion of ourselves. In fact, it's interesting to me. The Apostle Paul, in Galatians 2.20, that famous verse, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. Past tense. I have been crucified with Christ. It was in the past, yet... And that was true in one sense, yet in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, he said, I die every day. Now the question, Christian, is can you say that? Can you join the Apostle Paul and say, I have died with Christ in the past, and as a result, I am dying every day. Paul had to do that. <laughs> Don't think you're the exception. Paul had to, and so do we. Paul, although he had died with Christ, he still had to live with Paul. Paul had died in one sense, but Paul was still alive. And he details that struggle in Romans 7. But Paul knew that he had to live with himself until he was fully Glorified, And so he said, I die every day. My life is one marked by constantly crucifying my ambitions, my goals, my aims, and bringing my proud self underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Christian life, Paul knew and we know, is one act of perpetual repentance. If repentance is to follow Jesus, then the Christian is continually repenting. In all of those ways where I am not following Jesus in my parenting, I have to repent. You know, I'm like the little dog that's ran out. I've got to come back underneath, behind Jesus. Wherever I'm not following Jesus in my work relationships, I'm like the dog. I'm out there. I've got to come back behind the Lord Jesus. And that's repentance. And you do that a hundred times in one eight-hour day, right? Work day. And you do that countless times in parenting, countless times in navigating your life. Christianity is a perpetual turning from self to Christ. Turning from self-righteousness, me gaining God's favor by my own merit, It's a turning from that and a turning to the righteousness that Christ says he gives me by faith. And it's a turning from self-will. I want it my way. This should be easy, God, so why is it not so easy? Until it gets a little easier, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. This should be a little smoother. Why is it not so smooth? I don't like that I have to have this hard conversation. The Christian is constantly saying, I may not like that, but I am no longer the Lord of my life. I have died, and now I must die every day. And I am here, Jesus, to do your will. That's why I'm here. Isn't that Romans 12, 1 and 2? We're to be constantly offering our bodies as living what? A living sacrifice. Sacrifices don't live, typically. But this is a sacrifice that lives because we lay our lives down and God, by His grace, sustains us so that we can do His work, His way, and discern what the perfect will of God is as we live for Him, not for ourselves. Now, there's one other important point I want to make here before we finish. 
And that's this. Notice in, back in Mark 3 that Jesus doesn't say, whoever does the will of God will be my brother and sister and mother. Is that what your Bible says? I hope not. If your Bible says will be, then you should get a new Bible, and we are happy to give you a new one uh, at the end of the service. He doesn't say, if you do the will of God, you will be my brother and sister. No, he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The true family of Jesus does the will of God because they are, in fact, his family. They don't do his will so that they will become his family. They do his will because they are God's children. Do you see the difference? I will tell you that difference, recognizing that difference, is the determinative factor of joy in your life. If you think you have got to do God's will to become God's child, you will never get there, friend. The beauty of the gospel is John 1 12 to 14, where John says this, But as many as received him, they believed him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And then notice this part. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The entryway into the family of God is trusting Jesus. And once you trust Jesus, God makes you His child. And then once you are His child, you will start living like His child. You will bear the marks of His sonship. God is the one who makes someone His child. We cannot do that. But the fruit of our lives will actually, and this is Jesus' point, The fruit of one's life demonstrates the authenticity of their family ties. How is Jesus' biological family responding in this moment? They're not his true family. The only true family members that Jesus has in this moment are the people who are bearing the fruit of sonship. And the fruit of sonship is is submission to His Lordship. In other words, you know the true spiritual family of Jesus by their hunger to do the will of God. You recognize them by their fruits, and true children of God are always marked by a hunger to follow Jesus with increased faithfulness. If that's your desire... You should thank God for it, because that is not natural. You don't get that from working that up within yourself. If you have a desire to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, friend, that is because Jesus has done a work in your heart and has given you new passions and new desires. And now, if you are the Lord's, you need to know how the Lord would have you to express your love to him. True Christians, true, to truly live under the lordship of Jesus is to express our love to Jesus in a way that he prescribes. And in our culture, we express love, at least we're told to express love, by these warm and fuzzy feelings. That's how our culture would have you know whether you're in love or out of love and what love is. It's a warm, fuzzy feeling. And sadly, churches have bought into that. Christians have bought into that. And so I don't feel like I'm loving God unless I have these really warm, fuzzy feelings about Him. Uh, I don't think I'm really loving God. Who is the Lord and who gets to determine what true love is? Jesus is the Lord and Jesus determines what true love is. And Jesus determines how He wants His Servants, you and I, to express our love to him. Now you're thinking, where in the world is he going? That was a quick turn. Where are we? Well, turn to John 14, and I'll show you where we are. True followers of Christ understand that we express our love and our appreciation and our gratitude to the Master, not by these warm, fuzzy feelings, 
but by loyal obedience to the king. John 14, I need to turn there since I told you to turn there. John 14, just listen to Jesus. Jesus says, if you follow me, follow the will of God, you are my children. Okay, Jesus, what should we be doing? How can we show our love for you? How can we express our gratitude for what you've done for us? How can we even know if we truly love you? John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. In other words, if you love me, you will bow to my lordship. You will do what I tell you to do. Look at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who, what? Loves me. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You're sensing a pattern. You, Christian, you express your love to Jesus not by the warm feelings you have, but by your loyalty to Him as Lord. You have bowed the knee to Him and you say, Your will be done, not mine. And you do that, verse 31, John 14, verse 31, so that you show to everyone around you that you actually do love Jesus and you're committed to Him as your Savior and Lord. Verse 31, Jesus said, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I have all these warm, fuzzy feelings about the Father. No. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The Christian expresses their love and their gratitude for what the King has done for them by living a life surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When you obey Him, when you are ever and increasingly seeking to bring your life under His Lordship, you're expressing your love, but you're also expressing that you are actually His son or daughter. And that's the point of Mark 3, verse 35. Whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. You want to know who my true family is, Jesus says? It's those people who look like me. Those people who are bowed to the will of God and are following my will. So in closing here, from verse 20 to 35, we see and have seen three fundamental responses to Jesus. Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is Lord. You will make your decision, and you have made your decision. My question is, how have you responded? I am here to tell you that Jesus is no liar, he is no lunatic. He is, in fact, the Lord. And as Lord, He demands your unconditional surrender. He will accept no rivals. But if you bow to Him and believe Him and turn from your way and follow Him, you will find, just as all the Scripture promises, God is a God who abundantly pardons sinners. In His way is not only the only way, but it is the best way. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, and thank You for this call to renew, each one of us, to renew our resolve and our commitment to Jesus Christ and to bow to Him as Lord. We pray, Father, that You would help us, each of us, to bring our lives more and more under the conformity under the Lordship of Christ and into conformity to your word and your law. 
may we be able to say with the psalmist, your law is our delight. And Father, we know that it's because of your spirit dwelling within us that we now have a desire and an ambition to be faithful to you. Help us, Father. Help us to be yours. And Lord, we do ask if there is any here this morning, anyone who has not bowed to Jesus, Lord, that you would prick their heart, pound their heart in such a way that you would force them to come to terms with you through your word. And Lord, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.